This week's TribCast is sponsored by EarthX. Join us for the globe's largest free Earth Day celebration. EarthX 2022 features music, food, and family-friendly adventures. Happening April 20th through the 24th at the K. Bailey Hutchinson Convention Center in Dallas. Find out more at earthx.org. And UT Health School of Public Health is committed to seeking bold solutions for complex problems in the field of public health. Learn more at sph.uth.edu. Hello and welcome to the Texas Tribune TripCast for April 25th, 2022. My name is Matthew Watkins, Managing Editor of News for the Texas Tribune. We're joining you a couple days late uh, to bring conversations with our urban affairs reporter, Josh Fector. Hey, Josh. Hey, thanks, Matthew. And our criminal justice reporter, Jolie McCullough. Hey. Hey, so uh, I, I wanted to talk so badly about my property taxes that I bumped us from Friday to Monday so that I so that I could talk to Josh, who was off work on Friday. But first, we have some breaking news to talk about with Joe Lee. The uh, decision by the Court of Criminal Appeals to stay the execution of Melissa Lucio, who was slated to die on Wednesday um, in Huntsville, Texas, on, on a capital murder charge. The Court of Criminal Appeals issued its decision earlier this morning. The case will go back to a trial court to review her uh, her declaration of, of actual innocence in the case. Jolie, we'll talk a little bit about the Court of Criminal Appeals decision, but first, for those who might not be familiar, can you familiarize us with Melissa Lucio and her case and, and, and what she is accused of? Sure. Um, so this is a case that is out of um, Cameron County in the Rio Grande Valley. Um, it's she, Melissa Lucio is a woman. Um, she is now 53 um, at the time, 38 in 2007, accused of killing her two-year-old daughter, uh, Mariah Alvarez. Um, this pretty much what's happened in this case is since the get-go, there has been a lot of questions surrounding her doubt um, and also whether, you know, whether surrounding doubt, there's been a lot of doubt surrounding her guilt. I mean, I'm questioning even if this was a homicide. Um, there has been that Mariah died from blunt force trauma to the head. Um, Melissa, as well as some of the other children, um, some of her siblings, uh, told police that um, Mariah had fallen down the stairs a couple of days earlier, and that is what uh, Lucio's lawyers, um, now including the Innocence Project, have said caused her fatal trauma. Um, there's new evidence, new uh, forensic pathologists, doctors who've examined her um, evidence to say that this is her injuries could have very easily been caused by a fall down the stairs, not necessarily a beating. Um, but this was a case where a child, you know, emergency personnel were called to a house um, of an unresponsive child. This was the child was covered in bruises um, and had at one point had a broken arm. It definitely looked like child abuse um, and they led to the suspect being the mother right away as she was the one who's home with the child the most alone. Um, they interrogated her for about six hours the night of her child's 
deaf. Um, she was pregnant with twins at the time. And they really, they, they came at her essentially just asking her to confess as happens in police interrogations. Um, she very often, she for hours denied any abuse of her child um, until she didn't. Uh, a Texas stranger came in and kind of put, you know, spoke, spoke very soothingly, told her like, this is something you have to, you have to just come clean. Um, and she started just conceding with what the police said. Now, she never conceded to actually striking Mariah on the head, but she did um, concede that she you know, spanked Mariah pretty hard. She said, you know, when asked who bit her, there was an apparent bite mark on her back. She, she kind of shrugged and after he, she was pushed, she said, I guess I did it. Um, all of so yeah, the quote in your story, what do you want me to say? I'm responsible for it, yeah, right? Yeah, um, and so all of these, you know, admissions were her defense attorneys, her, her attorneys, her supporters claim were, were coerced. Um, she has since recanted them and said, you know, I didn't, they, they wanted me to say something. I wasn't going to tell them I killed my child, but you know, they, they weren't going to let me leave until I gave them something. Um, but that was really the, the, the crux of the state's argument was that the medical examiner had determined that this was a homicide caused by a beating. And, you know, they had the mom saying that she, she hit her child. Um, and so that's what led to a Cameron County jury in 2008 to convict her. Um, and since then, there's been so many questions around this interrogation specifically, um, what came out of it, if those statements were coerced, if they were false. And, you know, even at trial, the judge did not let mental health professionals testify as to why Melissa Lucio, who you know, has a very troubled life. She's been in uh, abusive relationships. She was sexually abused as a child, has been in abusive relationships since she was a teenager, had, you know, start, started having children as a teenager, was just, um, there was always trouble in her life. Um, why someone like that would, you know, tell police what they want to hear. Um, and the judge didn't let those people testify. That has been a big piece of what has the, the legal defense has been pushing as to why this case, this execution should not move forward. Um, but there has just been so many, so many times that the courts have upheld this, con this conviction, despite even though, like, despite conservative judges saying, you know, this case has a lot of problems and we're concerned that this, this isn't being carried out in the right way. But you know, we have nothing, like there's no recourse for us to stop it as appellate courts. So the faith for the, her supporters in the court system kind of fell flat and everyone had shifted recently to look for the governor and look to the Texas Board of Pardons and Paroles to um, pause this execution because they can also do that. And that the board was voting on that today at one o'clock and then at about 12.50, Five, it was like minutes before, it might've been 1245, but minutes before the Court of Criminal Appeals issued this stay of execution and sent her case back to the trial court to look at um, numerous things that had been brought up on appeal on, on the last appeal, which were, you know, that the state presented false evidence at trial, which are both that the Texas stranger said, he told the jury that he knew just from looking at her right away in the interrogation that she was guilty based on her body language and her demeanor. Um, false evidence they claim in that the medical examiner, you know, used her bias of ruling that this was child abuse to lead to her cause of homicide when 
you know, other pathologists have said, you know, you have to kind of exclude everything else before you rule that. So they're arguing that's false evidence. They also are ruling on a couple other things, but primarily the big thing being like that she is claiming she is actually innocent. Um, and so that is a big one for the courts to actually send back. Uh, actual innocence is not something that um, the courts take up lightly and that the court's signaling that they need to, the trial court needs to now review whether Lucio is actually innocent of this crime um, is a big signal to the court. And I think that's going to start a, a very long um, arduous new legal process for Lucio. Um, and she'll still be on death row. She's still on death row, but she will be, you know, she won't be facing execution probably for a couple of years. Right, so she was sentenced to death, as you mentioned, in 2008. This now goes back to the trial court. Is it a whole new trial that will happen? So that is not determined yet. So this isn't. This ruling wasn't that um, the court, the court of criminal appeals, doesn't say send this back for a new trial. They're sending this back for the court. It's it's kind of an intermediate step. They're sending this back for the court to weigh all of the evidence that she has since presented to this appellate court. And so now the trial court, they're saying, hey, trial court, you need to look into all of these things that she's saying. You can hold evidentiary hearings, which aren't necessarily new trials, but they can bring people in to say, hey, here's this new evidence as to why we should get a new trial. And it goes just before a judge. It doesn't go before a jury. Um, and that is usually then the judge will make a recommendation as to whether there should be a new trial or not. We saw this play out in the Rodney Reed case, which is another big case where there was a question of innocence that the Court of Criminal Appeals stopped in 2019. And they also sent it back for a similar thing. And the court, the trial court held an evidentiary hearing about a week long evidentiary hearing. And they were just kind of going over all the new things that had been raised, but it wasn't before a jury. It wasn't a, you know, he's not presumed innocent at this point. They're presumed guilty because they've been convicted. Mm -hmm. But is this worth a second, like a completely new trial? And that judge recommended that he didn't um, very controversially and that we're still waiting for the court of criminal appeals to see if they take that up, like how they weigh that. But that is essentially what is now the process that has been started in the Melissa Lucio case. Sure, and so this will be prosecuted by the local prosecutor, the Cameron County District Attorney who appeared before the a legislative uh, committee uh, last month or, or, or maybe earlier this month. Uh, yeah, earlier this month, basically this month. saying, you know, he would possibly, you know, at the last minute, if it came to that, you know, seek to delay the execution as well. I mean, is there any question about whether the prosecutor has any interest in continuing to see this case through or, or, or could we see any action from that area? Yeah, so he has issued a statement uh, this afternoon after this ruling, essentially saying, you know, he, he predicted this was going to happen, as he told the lawmakers a couple weeks ago in this hearing that the, he predicted the Court of Criminal Appeals would stay this execution. So he's saying, like, now I welcome the opportunity to prosecute this case. So he is seemingly kind of moving forward as if there will be a trial or, you know, even if there's not a trial in evidentiary hearings before a judge, you know, to have to prosecute this case before a judge or a jury with witnesses who can be cross-examined. And he's kind of going forward of like, we will get through this. We will go through the process that is needed. But uh, Lucio's lawyers are seeking to disqualify him. So we're gonna have to kind of see how that works. And they're seeking to disqualify him because uh, Lucio's original defense attorney at her trial in 2008, um, about a year after her trial, after she was sentenced to death, 
quickly went to work <laughs> for the district attorney and he continues to work for the district attorney. Um, so they're trying to have him uh, recused from the case on that ground and that has not been decided yet. So we'll see how that works. So as you mentioned, this decision by the Court of Criminal Appeals came down, you know, likely minutes before the Board of Pardons and Paroles was to issue its decision on this. What happens with that process now? Is that put on hold while while this case is resolved? Yeah, so the board put out a statement pretty much, you know, saying we're not going to vote on this now um, because clemency is some is the last is, is kind of the last stand. Right. So that's something that has essentially been made moot by the court saying, hey, we're going to send all this back to have a further review because the board was either going to recommend that Governor Abbott um, either change Lucio's sentence to one of life in prison without parole instead of the death penalty or, you know, pause all of her court proceedings for about three months while these new appeals kind of work their way through. And so the second one is especially made mute because they already paused. It's going to be longer than 120 days because it's going to be a very long court process, I predict. And then, you know, if they change her sentence to life, that kind of, there's like a different appellate, there are different appellate processes for death penalty cases versus life sentence cases. So it, it just, it, it's not really appropriate at this point, legally speaking, to have um, a, a, you know, a board recommendation on this when there is already, it's been stopped by the court and it's, it's already going through in that, in that process. I mean, one, one question I think that has to be asked here is that we're seeing kind of bipartisan support for uh, Melissa Lucio. We're seeing, you know, kind of nationwide concern. A lot of people convinced, I mean, even this district attorney saying in a, in a legislative hearing that he's pretty sure the Court of Criminal Appeals will do this. But I mean, ultimately, we were less than 48 hours away or, or maybe a little bit more than 48 hours away um, from her execution. I mean, how does it get this close when there's this much doubt? Yeah, I mean, and then like, honestly, this happens not, it's not, I wouldn't say it's regular, but it's not irregular. Um, and that is something I think that is going to be put to the lawmakers who are very vocal about this, you know, more than two thirds of the Texas Senate and more than half of the House had asked the parole board to stop this execution. And so if there are these lawmakers who, when their hands are tied, when they have no actual power, who are complaining about the process, based out of laws that they have created. Um, it, it, I think it raises an interesting point as to what happens next in the legislative process and how we're going to move forward with these cases in the future, because this is one that really drew attention to, you know, what m more than half of the legislature has determined to be problems in this, in this very critical field of punishment. But I think, you know, you're hearing like the DA saying, well, I think they were gonna stop it anyway. And that's fair to think, but I do think it's worth raising all of these questions. And like, you can't, you can't just expect that the court, you, there's no way of knowing what the Court of Criminal Appeals is going to do. This isn't something, it's not like they stop most executions. They do stop a decent amount, but not most. And so you, you're just like betting on something when you're like, you're actually betting on someone's life at that point. Like there's someone's life in the balance. Um, I think it's, it, it, it's there, there's no way to just put all of the eggs in, oh, the court of criminal appeals will probably stop it. I think, you know, if, if this is something that was problematic that like that these people wanted to stop that the DA wanted things needed to be stopped, 
those are important questions to raise to see what avenues there are beyond the courts. Absolutely. I mean, and just the, the amount of time this takes, I mean, let's say she is found to be innocent, you know, people will, of course, celebrate that and you don't want an innocent person to be executed. But I mean, she's been on death row for 14 years at this point. I mean, that's uh, no matter what happens to her, if she indeed did not commit this crime, that is a, you know, major miscarriage of justice. Right. And like, you know, she had children she was pregnant when she was arrested and had children in jail who she's never, you know, she's not allowed to see her children because, you know, the, the nature of her crime is that she murdered a child. So obviously she's not allowed to see children like have visitation or anything. So, I mean, there are a lot of questions as to, I think there's still a lot of questions as to like whether she's innocent or not, but the fact that this is so heavily questioned and the, the evidence was all circumstantial, um, it really does put this, it, it, I mean, it's really brought light and even the federal courts, like conservative federal courts have been like, hey, this is really like, this is problematic, but we can't stop it. Like the fact that there are judges, conservative judges saying that is, I mean, a big red flag. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So are there proposals already being discussed in the legislature about things to do about this? Or is it just a matter of, it seems to be that there's, a consensus that there's a problem here. Yeah, I mean, there hasn't been anything concrete that's come out. I know that they've, you know, when asked um, the lawmakers who are most vocal about this being um, state representatives, Jeff Leach and Joe Moody um, have largely been like, hey, we're, we're gonna look at this, but nothing concrete has really come out. Um, so I think that's something that will be worth exploring and worth looking at to see what they come up with over the next, whatever we're at, eight months or so. I guess it can go longer because it's not like bills have to be filed by January, but um, it'll be interesting to see what happens but before the next legislature, but nothing concrete has come out at this point that I'm aware of. Okay, well, let's pause for a minute and hear for our sponsors. Earthshare, are you proud of your outdoors and sustainable lifestyle? Join and support 36 Texas-based environmental nonprofits in the Instagram challenge, hashtag MyEarthMyTexas. Registration is free at MyEarthMyTexas.org. And Texas Woman's University is focused on making Texas healthier, offering more than 80 health-related degree programs from nursing and physical therapy to kinesiology and nutrition science. Learn more at TWU.edu health. Okay, so that stun sound you might have been hearing from across the state over the last couple of weeks have been, has been Texans pulling up their local county appraisal district and seeing how much their property values have risen in over the past year. In Harris County, according to Josh's recent story, residential values have risen between 15 and 30%. In Bayer County, the medium value of a home grew by nearly 25%. And in Travis County, the medium home value went up more than 50% to $632,000, just a stunningly high amount for a median value in a big urban county like Travis County. I can speak from experience, the house that I'm sitting in right now went up 56% and, and you know, shocked me in that regard. Josh, how much should I be panicking about my property taxes this year? Well, I, I get why people are freaking out because, you know, in, in Texas, homeowners already pay, you know, a significant amount of property taxes. You know, it's 
Texas is already like one of the states that is most dependent on property taxes. Uh, you know, homeowners, you know, pay such a large share in part because of, you know, uh, that's how we pay for schools. It's how we pay for police. It's how we pay for roads. It's how we pay for sidewalks. Uh, and so when people see, you know, they open that envelope and they get their appraisal notice, uh, you know, they, they freak out and I get why they would do that. Um, but, you know, it's, it's not a one-to-one, um, you know, just because you've got a big uh, property, uh, property appraisal, um, big increase in your appraisal doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be uh, paying uh, that exact amount in property taxes. And in, in, in all likelihood, you will be paying more property taxes. Uh, but, you know, there, there's a couple things that are that are working in, in folks' favor. Um, if you have a homestead exemption, uh, the taxable value of your of your home is is capped at 10 percent uh, in any given year. Um, there were also a couple of bills passed in 2019 uh, that are aimed at sort of capping local property tax growth. Uh, and so if you know, your cities or your counties exceed a certain amount of, of property tax revenue growth or they're projecting that um, and it goes over a certain amount, then they have to come ask you, the voters, uh, to, to figure that out and uh, to or to give you uh, give them permission uh, to to raise that. So there's 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 a couple things at play here. Um, but yeah, in all likelihood, yeah, you will be paying higher property taxes. Um, but yeah, if if you have some of these things in place, um, it looks like that'll be that'll be slowed a little bit, which you know might be cold comfort. But hey, indeed, indeed, you know. I Go ahead, Jolie. I, I want to ask a question. I want to just use this podcast now as just like ask questions about my property tax. Josh is therapy for homeowners. That's what we're going for. No, here. So what I'm, I'm, I'm a bad about... therapist. I'm going to tell you. <laughs> no, 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 I'm curious because so like I got my appraisal and like yes, I the, with a homestead exemption that does cap it, but like what it, does that mean? Like my property, like if if my assessed value has gone up or like my tax value, I guess has gone up. 10%, does that mean my property, like what I will be paying in property taxes goes up 10%? Is that like a one-to-one ratio or how does that work? Well, not necessarily. Um, if it, basically that's, that is the, the pool of, of value that is allowed to be taxed under state law. That doesn't necessarily mean um, that your, your property tax from your school district is going to go up 10% or, you know, the property tax bill you pay to your city or county is going to go up by that amount. Um, and so, uh, part of what some of the recent legislation that I mentioned, uh, is, is saying is that like you, uh, taxes can basically only go up so much, uh, under this new legislation. There's, there's a recent report from, uh, the Texas Taxpayers and Research Association that's that indicated that you know Texans would have paid about six billion more in property taxes had that uh, legislation not been in place. Um, but basically, because of your basically because of your homestead exemption and because because in part uh, you know this legislation is in place, like you're 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 not going to see perhaps as steep 
an increase in in your property taxes but you know it, it for for a variety of reasons including um the fact that you know people pay different tax rates depending on where they live um the you know that just because your taxable value goes up a certain amount doesn't mean that you're going to necessarily be paying that much more so is this a situation then where it actually is going to like property tax sharp property tax increases across the state is actually going to be hurting renters more because they're in situations that aren't like they don't have a homestead exemption like like are rents going to go up more than property taxes for home for more on mortgages you know that's a good question um because uh something that may may surprise people maybe maybe not um but you know if you're say living in a big old apartment complex that is not considered residential property that's considered commercial property and right now there's no there's no cap on how fast uh you know the taxable value can go up in a given year on commercial property uh capping that uh was actually floated um by representative morgan meyer in a recent uh, ways and means committee there was a there's a house committee last week where where he he basically asked the comptroller's office to to look into what would be the effect on tax revenue um but basically you know that that's that's kind of yet to be seen but we do know that um that you know renters don't have um if they're living in an apartment they don't have that kind of of, of protection um they basically have to rely on their landlord suing the appraisal district and contesting their value um, i know the apartment complex that i live in i'm in i'm in south dallas um it was it was valued at 30 million or so when we moved in last year and you know for a lot of the prior decade like it was basically in like the 20 million range um i looked up the the value uh that was uh, assessed at in or this year and it went up to 40 million so we'll we'll see we'll see what what happens there but like you can you can basically expect that kind of that kind of growth depending on where you are in the state um and you know it just goes to show that that if you're you're in a if you're a tenant in an apartment complex like you don't have that sort of protection that perhaps some homeowners have yeah, yeah, so are we just going to see, I'm sorry, Matthew, I've just taken over your podcast. I, I'm the one who asks the questions here. <laughs> go, okay, ahead, go ahead, go, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, so are we going to see just like more and more gentrification in terms of like, I know a friend of mine who's up in North Austin, rent in a two bedroom is going from 1200 to 1650. Like that is an insane jump to me. And um, like, I mean, how many people are just like, every time their lease is up, we're going to have to just move farther and farther away from the city center. Right. I mean, obviously, I'm sure that's already happening, but like, is this exacerbated in there? Yeah, I mean, it, that that would be my hypothesis. I mean, you've heard of of people moving um, because they they no longer can afford to live uh, in in you know these major urban areas, um, and you know it. Policymakers are going to have to figure out like what exactly you know, they, they, the solution is here because can a city just be people who can, uh, who can afford the most expensive apartments or can, ex can afford to absorb huge rent increases and, 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 and uh, you know, absorb these huge increases in value. Um, you know, it, it, 
it does raise questions about like just how long like Texas can can kind of endure these kinds of big shocks uh, without you know you know seriously displacing a lot of people. Yeah, you know, talking about the the kind of shifting. Uh, burden too. I mean, another factor here is that we're coming off a pandemic where a lot of mm -hmm. people are working from home, right? And, um, you know, all, all three of us right now are, are recording this from our homes instead of office spaces. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of borrowing from Ross Ramsey here, who I was talking about this earlier, saying, you know, if I owned a big office building downtown, which is, you know, generally viewed as one of the most kind of valuable properties uh, in a city, I'm making an argument that, you know, no, my, my, my property value didn't go up. My property value has plummeted over the last couple of years. And if that is indeed the case, then you're talking about even more kind of of that burden going to the residential uses, whether that's homeowners or even more so, you know, big apartment buildings and everything like that, where the demand is still high. So that'll be an interesting thing to watch as well. Right. Yeah. And, and, I get the sense that appraisers are kind of mixed on that, where it's like you're you're you see some shocks in that sense, but you also see uh, you do see property values in some areas going up in in terms of commercial property. Um, I haven't I haven't seen you know sort of the the big shock to the system in terms of commercial property, but but I mean it's also true that that typically commercial owners of commercial property have, you know, when you look at sort of your, your Walmarts, your Lowe's, your, uh, you know, your, your big sort of warehouse properties, your big office properties. I mean, they're, 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 they are lawyered up enough to where, you know, they're, they're consistently contesting uh, their, their, their property values. So to some, to some degree, like that balance is already kind of in, in, you know, the owners of of commercial properties favor uh you know because not every not every resident can can go and contest their home value like if you're if you're in a low-income household and you have you know two or three jobs that you have to work you don't have time to go contest your latest value to the appraisal district and you know you may not see you know a result that 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 is worth your time so yeah th i mean who knows we might see that 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 burden exacerbated here so of course we are in a state that doesn't have a state income tax and that mm -hmm. is of course a big reason why property taxes are so high um you know texas and its politicians not even just its conservative or republican politicians i mean there are a lot of democrats who are very proud of the fact that we don't have an income tax too but it is funny how i feel like property taxes are the ones that have the strongest ability to piss people off right you know because if i get a raise you know i'm technically going to be paying more in income taxes when I pay my taxes the next year, but I've seen that kind of subsequent boost in my income. So I'm not feeling it like it's a tax hike. Meanwhile, I've just been sitting in this house. I haven't really noticed or lived the benefits of the increase in my wealth from this house, from the value going up and won't feel it unless I choose to move, which I don't really want to move. So I'm sitting here looking at my appraisal and going, oh my God, my taxes are about to to, to fly sky high. I mean, and 
you know, we're starting to see this, right, Josh? I mean, this is something that that kind of political pushback of this and the, the need of state leaders to, to do something about it is once again kind of gearing up now, now that we're seeing these appraisals. Right. And yeah, and property tax reform, like that's, you know, property taxes have been kind of like a, a sort of, I guess, easy mark for uh, Republican lawmakers in the past. Like the, it's kind of a pet issue for Texas Republicans. And, you know, now that basically the state is undergoing like this huge surge of a population growth of you know this this red hot housing market uh you know it's it's easy it's something that's easy for them to to sort of talk about and to say you know we're going to campaign on on cutting your property taxes um it, it's 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 the way that they can basically talk about you know issues of affordability without say touching on you know the the need to increase sort of an affordable housing stock for example like that's this is kind of their way of of talking about affordability issues and you know they've tried to do this in the past um you've seen the the you know the state's homestead exemption rise to 25k uh, per household uh, there's an uh there's a ballot initiative on the may ballot to to increase that to 40,000 dollars uh, so texas uh voters are going to get a chance to say you know whether more residential property should be exempt from uh taxation here and you know sort of a bid to to to, to lower property taxes uh, you know but even then that's that's kind of you know folks have said that's kind of tinkering at the margins um you know according to some of the estimates that are out there uh, about how much this would save, you know, the the main proponent of the bill was uh, State Senator Paul Betancourt, um, and who, who wanted to put this on the ballot. And you know, that would, you know, his estimates show that that the average homeowner would save one hundred and sixty seven dollars uh, hmm. on their annual property tax bill, which, you know, it, it's 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 a slice of yeah. of your property tax bill. Um, and you know and so so to some degree um and you know i wrote a story uh, recently explaining all of this um but you know there's there's a sense among among folks who 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 have watched this stuff play out that that texas has really sort of painted itself into a corner here where you know you have used the income, the lack, the state's lack of an income tax to as sort of a carrot to to attract people uh, to the state and you know keep Texas you know more affordable than say you know California or New York or you know any sort of the coastal states, coastal cities, and you know by relying on property tax revenue for for all this for for. A huge chunk of your government services, uh, you know, you, you've you've basically, well, I don't want to misspeak, but basically, like you know, you've you've have this this income tax ban in the state constitution, so you've kind of painted yourself into a corner there, um, and at the same time, you have schools that are that are heavily reliant on on property taxes for for revenue, so 
like you basically have to go find either another source of revenue uh, or, you know, figure out a way to sort of shore up the state's share of, of public school funding to, to sort of see this sort of balanced out uh, under the current system, essentially. Yeah. Right. Jilly, any more questions? <laughs> I mean, yes, but I've already, I already take my point that I've overstepped. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you. You're, you're a good interviewer, Jilly, and Josh, you're a good uh, therapist. So I uh, appreciate you watching, walking us through uh, these questions. Uh, that's about all the time we have for today. We uh, thank you to Jolie and Josh. Thank you to our producer, Todd. And thank you to our sponsors, EarthX, the UT Health School of Public Health, EarthShare, and Texas Women's University. We will talk to you soon.